Hello friends, today we're going on a slightly different route to our normal myth pilgriming. Rather than exploring a particular story in depth, we're going to study a theme that characterizes pretty much every single fairy tale. The happily ever after ending, or simply the fairy tale ending. You know, where the prince and princess finally get married, our dreams are fulfilled, the enemy is vanquished and peace descends upon the kingdom forever and ever. Now, we accept these so-called bow-tie endings in our fairy tales, but what impact does it have on the way we live our lives? See, I've met quite a few people, including parents, who sort of roll their eyes at even the mention of fairy tales, saying that they set unrealistic expectations for children. You know, the real world doesn't work that way, and no life is that perfect. Um, there is no such thing as the one waiting for us, you know, for us to find. And, you know, try living happily ever after when there's the reality of finances and annoying mother-in-laws and screaming children and, and snoring mixed in, right? Fair enough objections. Well... What does Christianity have to say about happily ever after? You're listening to The Myth Pilgrim, and I am Brother Lawrence of the Missionaries of God's Love. At its heart, the spiritual journey is a delightful and perilous adventure, just like the myths and fairy tales we love. This podcast is also a journey, learning from both wizards and saints, enchanted princesses and inner demons. Together, we'll discover how the great symbols of myth and fairy tale can guide us on our journey to God. I'm going to propose right from the start that discussing the validity of happily ever after is a rather serious business. Because how we interpret the question reveals what we actually believe about Christianity. Because if our faith is true, the Bible is the only book and the Christian story the only story that actually finishes with a proper happily ever after. For in fact, it features a happily ever after that actually lasts for ever after, indeed for all time. And I refer here not merely to our belief in heaven and the end of all suffering, our forever union with God, etc. Rather, I also refer to what the resurrection of Jesus means for all the trials you and I are enmeshed in today. Whether it's uh, addiction, you know, a, a difficult marriage, rebuilding our lives after a tragic mistake, or just reeling from the effects of sin, our faith tells us that God can bring out of our trials today such glory that if, like an alien, were to visit the earth, the gospel would appear to him a bit like a fairy tale. But this gospel fairy tale is anything but naive, for it is grounded in historical reality testified to by millions of Christians down the ages. How we respond to this proposal is entirely up to us, and later in the episode, we're going to highlight the importance of repentance for saying yes to things ending in happily ever after. But for now, consider the fact that unless the Bible is all made up fiction, pretty much every story testifies to the fact that God has a preference for transforming the worst human tragedies into the most glorious victories imaginable. To begin nourishing our imaginations on this point, I'm going to read a passage written by J.R.R. Tolkien, in which, among many things, he pretty much lays out the very pattern of the Christian happily ever after. 
The passage I've chosen is the magnificent opening scene of The Silmarillion, where the central god character, whose name is Iluvatar, first creates the world. For those of you who don't know, the Silmarillion is like the history and backstory of Middle-earth, which is of course where the later Lord of the Rings is set. The following passage takes place before time begins, a bit like the opening lines of Genesis. For simplicity's sake, I can tell you that the character Iluvatar is pretty much the god figure, the Ainur are his immortal angels, and the character Melkor is pretty much Satan. Now, close your eyes and become enveloped in the scene that would give birth to Middle-earth. That rhymes. The one who is called Iluvatar first made the Ainur, the holy ones, that were the offspring of his thought, and they were with him before all else was made. And he spoke to them, propounding to them themes of music, and they sang before him, and he was glad. But for a long while, they sang only each alone, or but few together, while the rest hearkened. Ever as they listened, they came to deeper understanding and increased in unison and harmony. And it came to pass that Iluvatar called together all the Ainur and declared to them a mighty theme, unfolding to them things greater and more wonderful than he had yet revealed. And the glory of its beginning and the splendor of its end amazed the Ainur so that they bowed before Iluvatar and were silent. Then Iluvatar said to them, Of the theme that I have declared to you, I will now make in harmony together a great music. And since I have kindled you with the flame imperishable, you shall show forth your powers in adorning this theme, each with his own thoughts and devices, if he will. But I will sit and hearken, and be glad that through you great beauty has been awakened in song. Then the voices of the Ainur, like unto harps and lutes and pipes and trumpets and viols and organs, and like unto countless choirs singing with words, began to fashion the theme of Iluvatar to a great music. And a sound arose of endless interchanging melodies woven in harmony that passed beyond hearing into the depths and into the heights, and the places of the dwelling of Iluvatar were filled to overflowing, and the music and the echo of the music went out into the void, and it was not void. Now Elivita sat and hearkened, and for a great while it seemed good to him, for in the music there were no flaws. But as the theme progressed, it came into the heart of Melkor to interweave matters of his own imagining that were not in accord with the theme of Elivita. For he sought therein to increase the power and glory of the part assigned to himself. To Melkor, among the Ainur, had been given the greatest gifts of power and knowledge, and he had a share in all the gifts of his brethren. He had gone often alone into the void, seeking the imperishable flame, for desire grew hot within him to bring into being things of his own. Being alone, he had begun to conceive thoughts of his own unlike those of his brethren. Some of these thoughts he now wove into his music, and straight away discord arose about him. And many that sang nigh him grew despondent, and their thought was disturbed, and their music faltered. But some began to attune their music to his, rather than to the thought which they had at first. Then the discord of Melkor spread even wider, and the melodies which had been heard before founded in a sea of turbulent sound. 
But Iluvatar sat and hearkened, until it seemed that about his throne there was a raging storm, as of dark waters that made war one upon another in an endless wrath that would not be assuaged. Then Iluvatar arose, and the Ainur perceived that he smiled. And he lifted up his left hand, and a new theme began among the storm, like and yet unlike to the former theme. And it gathered power and had new beauty. But the discord of Melkor rose in uproar and contended with it, and again there was a war of sound more violent than before, until many of the Ainur were dismayed and sang no longer, and Melkor had the mastery. Then again Iluvatar arose, and the Ainur perceived that his countenance was stern. And he lifted up his right hand, and behold, a third theme grew amid the confusion, and it was unlike the others. For it seemed at first soft and sweet, a mere rippling of gentle sounds in delicate melodies. But it could not be quenched, and it took to itself power and profundity. And it seemed at last that there were two musics progressing at one time before the seat of Iluvatar, and they were utterly at variance. The one was deep and wide and beautiful, but slow and blended with an immeasurable sorrow from which its beauty chiefly came. The other had now achieved a unity of its own, but it was loud and vain and endlessly repeated, and it had little harmony, but rather a clamorous unison as of many trumpets braying upon a few notes. And it tried to drown the other music by the violence of its voice, but it seemed that its most triumphant notes were taken by the other and woven into its own solemn pattern. In the midst of his strife, whereat the halls of Iluvita shook and a tremor rang out into the silences yet unmoved, Iluvita arose a third time, and his face was terrible to behold. Then he raised up both his hands, and in one chord, deeper than the abyss, higher than the firmament, piercing as the light of the eye of Iluvatar, the music ceased. Wasn't that profound and beautiful? While the passage takes place at the chronological start of the Silmarillion, it can nevertheless be understood as a metaphor for our entire biblical history, the creation, fall and redemption of our world. Now, I don't know how much you picked up from listening to this for the first time, but ultimately what happens is that at the beginning of time, the God character, Iluvatar, creates a musical theme for the empty void, and his angels, the Ainur, sing in harmony with this theme, and for a time, all is well. Then the greatest of all the Ainur, Melkor, comes along, he's the the devil character, and in his own pride, creates a discordant melody, one that sounds terrible and clashes with the previous song of the Ainur. So in response, Elevator offers a newer musical theme, which Melkor again distorts and twists with his own music. Elevator responds a third time, but this time he actually takes some of the notes from Melkor's discordant melody and weaves them into his own to create the most beautiful melody of all. One Tolkien describes as deep and wide and beautiful, but slow and blended with an immeasurable sorrow from which its beauty chiefly came. And then after this, having established before all of creation that he alone was God, the world of Middle-earth is born. Okay, so you might have an idea of why I share this passage. Because it illustrates a uniquely Christian understanding of how happily ever after works. If Melkor's ugly melody could be likened to our sin, then Iluvatar's final melody can be likened to Christ's redemption, 
in which he takes our sinful melody and permanently transforms it into his glorious melody. In other words, the glory of Jesus' resurrection does not simply lie in its ability to vanquish evil. Any powerful God in antiquity could do that. No, the resurrection's true glory lies in its ability to transform evil into a far greater good, a good that wasn't even possible before the evil was committed. Tolkien himself once coined a term that describes this sort of drastic turnaround. He called it the eucatastrophe ending, which is a combination of the Greek suffix eu, as in eu, <laughs> um, combined with the word catastrophe. So ultimately combined, the word means a good catastrophe, a eucatastrophe. Tolkien describes how he needed to find a word that denoted not just a generic happy ending, but a definitive reversal of a tragic ending. In other words, the type of ending introduced by Jesus' resurrection. For Tolkien, as a Catholic, didn't just believe God could draw straight with crooked lines, he believed he could draw masterpieces from them. And if we have the eyes to see it, this same resurrection pattern is repeated in like every individual Bible story. Consider the Old Testament story of Joseph, who, because of his own arrogance and the sins of his family, gets thrown into a pit, and then he gets sold into slavery, and then gets accused of adultery, and gets thrown into Pharaoh's own dungeon. <laughs> doesn't get much worse than that, really. And yet, from that place, God was able to take that hellish, sinful mess and write a new story, one that was even better than the story Joseph was in before he got thrown into the pit. By giving Joseph the gift of dream interpretation, God raises him up as the greatest overseer in Egypt and uses him to save not only Egypt from perishing in the famine, but also the entire chosen people. The story happily ends with Israel's reunion, redemption, and the establishment of the twelve tribes of Israel. And from there, in the midst of their enemies, the God of Abraham could demonstrate to all the other powers and gods of the world that he alone is God. But note how God didn't just reverse the sin done unto Joseph. Rather, he takes the sin done to Joseph and transforms it into his own glorious purposes. Like Eluvatar, the Judeo-Christian God is not threatened by sinful dysfunction, for he has demonstrated over and over that he is Lord over it. As St. Paul tells us, God turns all things for the good to those who love him. It is this promise that gives the Christian firm hope in happily ever after endings. In this lifetime, it is not so much the absence of trials that makes up our happily ever after, but rather the promise that every trial can become a bubbling fount of grace and blessing. And when understood in this sense, the possibility of happily ever after is not naive after all, even though to the world it may seem like fairy tale nonsense. But for Christians, it is simply truth. By contrast, what would be naive is to think that evil will have the final word, that sin in our lives is too big and that our mistakes are irredeemable. This is what the enemy wants us to think, and he hates the fairy tale endings in the Bible. But where in our own lives might we still be listening to him? Where might we have stopped believing our fairy tales and slipped instead into the tale of despair? If you're enjoying this episode of The Myth Pilgrim, do consider sharing it with your friends so that we can together encounter God veiled in our favourite tales. I'm always open to your feedback and ideas too, so always feel free to contact me on The Myth Pilgrim Facebook page or through the website at themythpilgrim.com.
Okay, now what I'm about to say is particularly important. If Jesus has demonstrated that he can ultimately transform evil and suffering for the good, are we just sort of passive in this process? Do we just live our lives believing, well, St. Paul said that where sin increases, grace abounds all the more, and go on living our lives undiscerningly? The answer, of course, is no. For it is possible to reject the happily ever after of resurrection, and we call this reality hell. For while the Bible shows over and over the power of Jesus to resurrect our situations, the same Bible posits repentance as the indispensable means to cooperate with this process. Repentance is like uh, the key that allows us to unlock grace into our lives. You could say that it is the precursor, the condition in which we actually say yes to the gospel. After all, think back to the scriptures. In the Old Testament, repentance was like the central message of all the prophets who foretold of God's victory and faithfulness, yes, but only once Israel repented and turned away from their idol worship and so on. To turn away from sin and repent was also the message of John the Baptist, whose mission was to prepare people for the message of Jesus. And then in Mark's gospel, Jesus' own first words were, The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and receive the gospel. Okay, so what does repentance mean? Well, from the Greek word metanoia, which we translate as repentance, uh, repentance literally means to turn one's life around or to reorient one's direction. It means to acknowledge one's sins and shortcomings, yes, but like the prodigal son, it also means we resolve to amend them too. It means renouncing the enemy's lies and his tales of despair. It means the willingness to convert all our faculties, the mind, the will, the emotions, and the body back to God. You could even say that the measure of our repentance is actually how concretely it turns us away from sin and back towards God. For example, in the Joseph story, we see how when um, Joseph's brothers rise up to fight and defend young Jonathan, this is actually a sign of their repentance, an indication before God that they had turned away from their first sin of betraying young Joseph. This gesture becomes the key to literally their own salvation, for it reconciles them to Joseph and then ushers in the whole tribe of Israel into Egypt during the famine. And of course, Joseph himself uh, demonstrates repentance uh, through learning to use his gift of dream interpretation for the service of others rather than for building up his own ego. You know, even in our secular fairy tales, um, it, they pick up the significance of repentance in bringing about their happily ever after endings. I mean, look at the endings of tales like Pinocchio, where Pinocchio is turning back to his conscience and proving himself uh, brave, truthful and unselfish, opens himself up to the grace of the blue fairy. And the result is, the lifeless Pinocchio not only gets restored back to life as a puppet, but gets transformed into the real flesh and blood boy. Beauty and the Beast also ends with this type of glory too, where not only does the beast get transformed back into a human prince, which is normally a good enough ending, but he also gains the lovely Belle as his wife. Through his turning away from selfishness and displaying a willingness to sacrifice himself for another, the prince ends up more blessed than he was before his fall. Perhaps our secular age loves fairy tales that end like this because they echo the real ending that can truly satisfy our souls, the Christian happily ever after. As mentioned at the start of this episode, 
The Christian happily ever after is not limited to the experiences of this lifetime. Indeed, it finds its fullest expression at the end of time, in heaven, where history arrives at its zenith, justice is restored, suffering will cease, and God's love for you and I becomes consummated. It is only in eternity that happily ever after is permanently actualized. For while we here on earth can have glimpses of it, we also know that some trials will only reveal its resurrection glory in eternity. And while we carry such crosses, especially those we have no control over, we are invited to orient our lives by the resurrection tale and not by the hopelessness tale. Pastorally, there's much more to say about all of this, but perhaps that's for another heaven-themed episode of The Myth Pilgrim. For now, I will leave you with this thought. Most happily ever afters in our fairy tales involve some sort of romantic fulfilment in which lovers finally get together and begin a new life, right? Well, there's also something similar to be said about the Christian happily ever after. For the Bible is also the greatest love story of all time. One where God, love himself, spares nothing, not even his own life, to pursue and woo and win us back, his beloved bride. The ending of the Bible in the book of Revelation even describes heaven as a wedding feast where we are presented to God as a bride adorned with jewels for her husband. This is our true and final destiny. And this also means that next time you find yourself all warm and fuzzy and swoony about a Disney fairy tale ending, realize that it is a tiny foretaste of the real ending to come, one that you and I are invited to be swept up in. Because when all is said and done, for us Christians, happily ever after is not just a fairy tale, it is a promise. <laughs>